Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, inventor of the bathroom buddy knockoff, the Pooper Pal. Oh man, that was. Did you workshop that joke? Because that <laughs> well, was, you know, it's like you know, you got toilet, but is there an alliterative synonym that starts with T for friend? There's a lot that goes into it, Josh. I don't want to, you know, give everyone all the nuts and bolts. Go inside baseball, show them the the sausage before it's all made. But uh, but it, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Well, that's why uh, you know that's why you're on stage at uh, local bars and grills. So. Uh, <laughs> I am neither on stage uh, at local bars nor local girls at the moment. Not at the moment, but in the past. Um, so it is the holidays, uh, I think, and <laughs> who knows in this strange year. But uh, we have been in this season of Awesome Movie Year talking about the films of 1984. And because it is the holiday season, we are uh, pausing in our sort of uh, regular lineup to bring a bonus episode in celebrating Christmas to talk about Joe Dante's Christmas-themed film, Gremlins, featuring the bathroom buddy, as well as some other stuff. Josh, we're creating chaos in our own small town as if this was Kingston Falls and we're the Gremlins. <laughs> we are just as cute and lovable as the Gremlins, I think. Um, you know, Josh, before we start, this was probably one we might have covered in a bonus episode anyway, because we always look for iconic or important movies that we might have not gotten to. And, and uh, this is as big as it gets for this year. Yeah, this was a huge movie. Uh, I mean, it was a massive success. It uh, grossed two hundred and twelve point nine million dollars on its budget of only eleven million. And it was the fourth highest grossing film of 1984. It was a huge pop culture phenomenon beyond just its box office, merchandising and licensing and all that stuff. And we've talked a few times, a number of times, I think about the the blockbuster intensity of 1984. And the craziness of that is that this movie was released on the same day as Ghostbusters. And these movies both are just massive pop culture phenomenons. Well, yeah, because this, you know, we're take, we're going back to the 80s where it was like, you know, Columbia versus Paramount versus Warner Brothers. And each one had to have like a big release every single week. Right. And uh, like you said, this was released in June and it's a Christmas movie. But the the point was like, hey, we got to have something to go against Ghostbusters. And that's, uh, you know, Ghostbusters beat it overall in like the box office for the year. But I think they're both pretty happy with how it worked out. The uh, people behind both films. Yeah, I think so. And to have, I mean, I'm not sure where Ghostbusters was on the on the chart, but I'm guessing it was number two or number three for the year. So, I mean, to have two of the top five grossing movies of the year released on the same day is is pretty friggin' impressive. Um, and this certainly was, as you're saying, as a summer movie season, this was just packed with blockbusters, uh, which was mentioned in some of the reviews that I looked up. As well as I, 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 I have to uh, criticize myself here because I've been remiss so far this season 
in checking in with Siskel and Ebert because I think I got out of that habit in our 1977 season when uh, there is no video Siskel and Ebert show. But I've been doing that before, and so I returned. I, I finally remembered to do it, and I watched the Siskel and Ebert segment on this, and, and they enjoyed it, and they gave it two thumbs up. This is a relief for all of us, Josh. <laughs> you back to watching old Siskel and Ebert shows. It's very important. While you, while you sit oh, alone right. in your apartment with no one else around you. That's um, what I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I think... I think what to me is impressive before we get into it is like it's a total Christmas movie, hence why we're covering it right now. But like you don't ever think like, oh, big Christmas release during the summer season. And for this to resonate as much as it did against all those summer blockbusters that were that had nothing to do with Christmas season is is pretty uh, interesting and shows just just uh, what a quality film this is, Josh. That it is. And certainly it's very Christmassy, but at the same time, it's also, uh, you can see how this was crafted as a blockbuster, as a crowd-pleasing mainstream thing. Yes, Josh, as uh, your friend Ebert liked to say, I think it was Ebert who said it, or a variety, it was in the Variety Review, they called it a calculated audience pleaser. There you go. That sounds like something Variety would say. And actually, I did not grab the, the Variety Review, but uh, I do have Roger Ebert on this movie who said, Gremlins was hailed as another E.T. It's not. It's in a different tradition. At the level of serious film criticism, it's a meditation on the myths in our movies. Christmas, families, monsters, retail stores, movies, boogeymen. At the level of pop movie going, it's a sophisticated, witty B-movie in which the monsters are devouring not only the defenseless town, but decades of defenseless cliches, but don't go if you still believe in Santa Claus, which I think there at the end is a, is a reference to the fact that many people thought this was a movie for children, but it really isn't. It's not, but I do agree with Ebert. Like part of the fun of this movie is so many recognizable tropes of film and Christmas films and, uh, you know, family and holiday films. One other thing from that review, Josh, is he referenced that it some of the execution of it was similar to those 1950s sick jokes. Do you know of any sick jokes from the 1950s you'd like to share with us, Josh? I, I do not. I believe he's referring there to uh, possibly my favorite scene in the whole film when Phoebe Cates' character tells the story of her father's demise, which I think was a repurposing of an old urban legend that may be something that people made jokes about in the 1950s that Ebert remembers. But as, as we've often talked about, the, the sort of glimpses into Ebert's young life in his <laughs> reviews are always entertaining. And I can see young Ebert in the 1950s telling his friends some sick jokes. Do you think he's like, he's probably pulling them, you know, inside the boys' room while they're sharing cigarettes or underneath the bleachers and they're they're not making out with the cheerleaders. They're just telling each other some sick jokes, Josh. I, I absolutely can see that because, you know, Ebert was probably the the nerd with the with the jokes back in the, the day. Yeah, while, <laughs> while other kids were finding the Playboys, he was finding his dad's like 1001 Dirty Jokes book or yes. something. We've really painted a vivid and possibly wildly inaccurate picture <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of Roger so Ebert's childhood. <laughs> So if Awesome Movie Year isn't around next week, it's because the Ebert estate has sued us <laughs> there for you slander and libel. Um, but Ebert does, does mention what, you are, what you're saying there, the idea of this movie being so 
referential of other movies. And, and Joe Dante, the director, is very much that kind of filmmaker. Uh, he comes from that B-movie tradition. He started out working with Roger Corman, and he's obviously very uh, familiar with and, and has a strong love for these old 1950s like creature features and stuff, and that comes across a lot in here. And Richard Corliss in Time Magazine also references that a bit. He says, spooky as a slumber party in a graveyard. The picture is buoyed by a hip, good-timey sense of humor and buttressed by a marketing campaign that means to get a furry doll into every child's birthday bundle. But Gremlins has enough style and savvy to stand on its own as the summer's most original Hollywood picture. Like so many other recent works produced by the film school generation, this is at heart a movie about movies, and about the innocent thrills a sophisticated team of craftsmen can elicit. It should give pleasure to stout-hearted children, as well as to PhDs in cinema studies, and in the bargain, share the laurels of summer box office smash with the inevitable Indiana Jones. This is what superior popular movie making is all about, using high technology and a cheerfully bonkers creativity to reach and elevate the lowest common denominator. And weirdly enough, I feel like Joe Dante there is maybe sort of the, the, the progenitor of someone like Quentin Tarantino, where he's mixing that B-movie, low culture stuff that he has affection for with the more sophisticated, like wonky film school approach. Uh, and, you know, another point to that is I really like the creatures in this, which kind of harken back to those creature features, you know, and they're realistic. They're, you know, not CGI. They're fun. And I, as we've said kind of on the show before, I wish we'd see more stuff like that nowadays, but everything is computer generated now, Josh. So, um, I, I, I agree. This, the, uh, that seems to be the theme throughout these two reviews is we got a little highbrow, a little lowbrow. You meet in the middle and what do you get? A box office smash. Yes. And I agree. The, the creature design is great in this movie. And uh, it was a difficult process. It involved like a lot of different kinds of creatures, puppets and animatronics and um, stop motion, I think a little bit. But it all comes together really, really well. And you definitely get a sense of the reality of those creatures within the movie that you don't always get with CGI. So uh, I, I love that. And that was something I noticed again watching this. Yeah. And that's Chris Wallace, uh, who designed the creatures, the gremlins. And uh, one thing that we should note is Chris Wallace was uh, kind of fighting for these puppets um, to be the gremlins. But uh, Joe Dante and the rest of the filmmaking team insisted on testing monkeys wearing gremlin heads. And when they put the gremlin head on the monkey, it uh, freaked out and defecated all over the room. Uh, could have used a bathroom buddy right there. And uh, they all agreed puppets were the way to go after that. That is insane. And I wish, you know, I, I watched this movie on DVD and it had a bunch of uh, deleted scenes that were uh, right, rightfully deleted. But I really wish it had had some test footage of monkeys with gremlin heads. I don't know if yeah. that exists, but I'd like to see it. Yeah, that would be fun. You you know, if a monkey's going to poop all over the place, that's one thing. But if you want to take that up a notch, just put a gremlin head on it. Yeah, that's perfect. So Vincent Vincent Canby and the New York Times was less into it and also seemed to be uh, either baffled or frustrated by the idea that he thought it was a movie for children. 
So he starts out comparing it to Poltergeist, which is another Steven Spielberg produced horror movie that came out a couple of years earlier. Also he, not for children. Also not for children. <laughs> and no one thought that was for children, but people thought this was for children. So uh, he says, Gremlins, however, has a very different character, being a wiseacre mixture of movie buff jokes, movie genres, and movie sensibilities. It's as schizoid as the Mogwai, which, having been fed after midnight, suddenly reproduces itself, but not in its own sweet, cuddly image, but as dozens of small, demonic creatures, the gremlins of the title. At which point, gremlins explodes in an orgy of special effects, which should scare the wits out of very small children for whom, I assume, the movie was made. Both Mr. Dante and Chris Columbus, who wrote the screenplay, have antic senses of humor, but they are unreliable. They attack their young audience as mercilessly as the creatures attack the characters. Gremlins is far more interested in showing off its knowledge of movie lore and making random jokes than in providing consistent entertainment. And I think he's very wrong about all that. I mean, one of the great things about this movie is the way that it mixes the genres together, but he obviously did not, was not on board with that. If I'm not mistaken, he's also factually incorrect there. The Gremlins reproduce, the Mogwai reproduced from the water, but they transformed into Gremlins because of eating after midnight. So he's got that kind of mixed up where he says that they just kind of reproduced by eating or whatnot. Right, so, um, yes, yeah. that is true. He's kind of, conflating those two steps but you know he's got a word count he's there's only there's only three <laughs> rules vincent yeah. canby of the new york times yeah he definitely missed the missed the boat on that and and again i think the idea that this is for kids was probably in part because of a marketing campaign that focused on on gizmo who is very cute the mogwai who the non-gremlin mogwai and and also something that maybe we'll talk about with the legacy which is that this is a pg rated movie that was really pushing the limits of that and ultimately is is one of the main inspirations for the creation of the PG-13 rating. Yeah, we can just ruin that right now, Josh. It was, this and, it was this and Temple of Doom where they thought like this is too much for PG and then they both kind of pushed to PG-13 and then Red Dawn was actually the first movie to come out as a PG-13. But I think it's also like, again, maybe, I mean, I hate the MPAA and their rating systems anyway. Screw you guys. Uh, but uh, but I mean, you know, when you say it's a kid's movie, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, sure, like there are the people like that you read about. Oh, I took my four year old. But there's no reason an eight or a nine year old can't see Gremlins, Josh. Right. I mean, I you know, unlike you, obviously, I'm not a parent. And so I don't really uh, care what's appropriate or not for children. And I think furthermore, as a critic, like it's one thing to come into a movie and say, oh, you know what? I expected something and I got something else. and like. I have to kind of adjust my perspective here, but to criticize the movie in the idea that like, oh, people think this for children, but it's not, it's like, okay, but is it a good movie as what it is? Yeah, and, I, agree. Um, I agree. And I think, I think can be at least seems a little too focused on the idea that it's for children, but I, you know, also it doesn't seem like he was really a fan overall. And I think we've seen this too with sometimes with movies we when we talked about Beverly Hills Cop with like the action and comedy and here we have horror and comedy that critics at the time were maybe a little put off by these mixings of genres that hadn't been done as much before. I mean, now horror comedies, I feel like co putting comedy in horror is is as common as putting horror in horror at this point in horror movies, but you know, perhaps less so back then. I think you're right. This is one of the forerunners of that genre. 
And Josh, uh, all these good points you're bringing up, this is why people read your reviews at local bars and grills. Yeah, you should, I believe. (laughs) Well, I'm not I'm not in Las Vegas Weekly anymore, but I think you can still pick up Las Vegas Weekly at at local bars and grills. So uh, it's not that far (laughs) off, really. Uh, so Jason, did you see this as a child? I don't know the first time I saw Gremlins. Again, it was one of those movies that was always so prevalent in my life, you know? I remember seeing Gremlins 2 in the theater, which we'll talk about in the legacy, I'm sure. Um, but I don't remember when I saw Gremlins for the first time, but I've seen it multiple times. How about you? Yeah, I feel similarly. Like, I definitely did see it as a kid, and I, I, I'm sure I wasn't four years old, but I maybe was eight or nine as you're saying might be the appropriate age. But this was certainly one of those movies that I saw as a kid that was kind of an introduction to horror. And I I loved this. I'm sure I saw it multiple times as a kid and I've seen bits and pieces of it uh, over the years on TV and stuff. And it's, it's become this holiday season favorite. Certainly it'll be on TV a lot around Christmas time. And I, I think it's it's probably been a number of years since the last time I saw it, but um, I did remember most of it. Although I don't think I remembered that that Phoebe Cates speech about her father's death, which, like I said, I think was my favorite part of the movie this time. Yeah, um, I uh, I watched it for Christmas last year. You know, around this time, I like to, you know, revisit the holiday films, Josh. Yeah. Um, and I did watch it last year, but I think maybe, you know, it was one of those movies, again, that we've talked about that's like so ubiquitous that it's like, yeah, I know it. I've seen, if not all of it, parts of it here and there. And maybe last year I was just like, hey, I got to sit down and actually watch this in case I never have really, you know? So. Right, right. You're never quite sure. And it's been parodied and it's been referenced and all that stuff. Um, did you show it to your child? I Last year I did. And she wasn't into it last year. This year uh, she watched a little bit of it and a little bit of Gremlins too. And, uh, and she, I think she would sit through the whole thing and like it, but she just she was on to, you know, Sugar Rush uh, holiday Christmas baking championship or something. But she she she's ready for it now, man. You know. Yeah. All right. You've prepared her. That's good. How about you, Dave? Uh, we know your parents like to show you inappropriate films when you were a young boy. When was the first time you saw it? I'm sure I saw it as a kid, but like you guys, I don't really remember exactly when. Uh, but I will say, speaking of Christmas time, though, uh, I saw this last December. Uh, and in 4DX in the theater. Whoa. Nice. Yeah, I think yeah. I, rem- I remember that. And I was considering going to, to see it and I never made it. Did that enhance your experience? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of fun. I mean, lots of stuff shooting at me and all that. Is that so 4DX, I, I mean, what is the, the D? The X is for sound or what's the 4D? I'm confused. The X is for so, extreme, Jason. <laughs> Josh on. has it right, right there. But yeah, no, your, your seat shake, uh, stuff like like air shoots at your face whenever like a gremlin is flying oh, past the it. screen, you know, and water splashes on you and stuff like that. All, all kinds of stuff Josh would hate probably. Sensory yeah. enhancing <laughs> right. uh, mechanisms. Does your, does your seat move? Oh yeah, it moves all over the place. Not just like up and down, left and right, but like it goes with like camera pans and stuff like that too to like oh take you around God. corners and things. It's it's a lot. But this Dave, is, does hmm. your seat fly into the air when Mrs. Deagle flies off of the <laughs> the automatic chair, the electric chair there? Hopefully they'll be able to do that one day. Yeah. That this would is... be worth it. Maybe that'll bring the theater industry back, Josh. I know, I was going to say, this is the sophisticated cinematic experience that we've been deprived of <laughs> with theaters being closed. You can't get water 
splashed on your face watching Netflix unless you do no, it yourself. That's true. You got to have like get someone with a spray bottle to stand next to you. <laughs> um, Jason, do you have any other background on this film you'd like to mention? Yeah, you. We keep talking about is it a family film? Is it not a family film? The young. Uh, I guess, you know, we mentioned the Young Artists Awards, which were a thing back 30, 40 years ago. It won Best Family Motion Picture Adventure. So that's a thing. Um, the Saturn Awards, which we've talked about before, Josh, it won Best Horror Film Supporting Actress, Director, Music and Special Effects, if I'm not mistaken. The other fun uh, throwback for me was that uh, when it was released on VHS, it made $79,500,000. That's, that's an amazing, like that, that's fun. Wow. That, you, you know, you can take risks when you can double your, or make so much money on video and everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had this on VHS when I was a kid. Um, I'm sure I contributed to that or my parents did. So. Uh, Bravo, Josh. Thank you, Bravo. thank you. Yes, that's a doing my service to cinema. We will come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Gremlins. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Christmas episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about Joe Dante's Gremlins and wishing you all a very happy holiday season from us here at Awesome Movie Year. That's nice. That's <laughs> nice, it? Josh. Yeah. You can tell I'm sincere, right? I really <laughs> felt like you were trying to raise some type of authenticity in your voice. And, you know, you, you probably fooled a few people. Yeah, maybe so. We'll see. But I think the the sort of sarcastic wishing of happy holidays is exactly the right tone for this movie. You're right, Josh. This is full of uh, mayhem and hijinks and taking what we know as holiday traditions and twisting them up with demented ideas and sick 1950s jokes. Yes, yes, it is. And and just so I mean, we've we've kind of basically uh, gotten the the gist of this movie, but uh, it is begun by the inventor of the bathroom buddy and other ineffectual household items. Who is really goes, a bad inventor, isn't he? He's a terrible inventor mm -hmm. and very uh, culturally insensitive as he goes to Chinatown and insists on being sold. This cute little mogwai, despite the fact that its owner uh, says that it's not for sale, and he instead uh, buys it out of the back of the shop from the owner's grandson, who steals it, essentially, so to sell it to this rich white guy. Um, and he brings it home to give as a gift to his son, Billy, played by Zach Galligan. And Billy's a terrible pet owner. Uh, Billy is given these three rules, as we mentioned, for the Mogwai. Don't get it wet, don't expose it to bright light, and don't feed it after midnight. And he does all those things. And yeah. <laughs> the Mogwai reproduces and mutates into the gremlins who then terrorize the town. Right. And and the, the, the terrorizing of Kingston Falls is so much fun that you overlook so many gaps in logic. Like, for instance, Peltzer goes to Chinatown. He tries to buy the Mogwai. Uh, we know that the, what is it, Mr. Lin won't sell it to him. Is that his name? Uh, yeah, maybe. The the owner of the shop. Yeah. Mr. Wing. Mr. Wing. There so, you go. And uh, and then, like you said, the grandson sells it, really disrespecting his grandfather there. Yeah. And yeah, Mr. Wing doesn't show up until the end as if he's like, oh, I finally found you. We knew. I mean, it was very clear who 
got the Mogwai, you could have gone very quickly and got it back, I think, you know? Well, well, true. But I think Mr. Wing is interested in teaching these foolish white people a lesson. And he's going to yes. let them endure the chaos before he comes to save them. I like that, Josh. White people need to be... You know what? The Peltzers are really a bunch of Karens, if you think about it. But that's... They kind of are. I mean, I really feel like this movie, whether it's intentional or not, is 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 a story about like cultural appropriation, about these overconfident white people who insist on stealing a piece of Chinese culture and then fuck with it and learn nothing. Yeah, they don't understand. They don't treat it with its due respect. And, you know, and they and they pay a price. OK, you got me on that one, Josh. I'll, I'll give you that. But how about this? The three rules, yes. right? Don't mm -hmm. get it wet. Don't expose it to light. And then uh, don't feed it after midnight. Right. Well, we know exposing it to light like basically kills them. OK, I get that. Right. Don't get it wet. I'm wondering. I mean, all we see is it getting wet with water. Would it be different if it got wet with like, um, you know, like high sea? I mean, since this was the 80s or, you know, sunny delight. I don't know. Would the same with the same type of gremlin well Go ahead, Josh. Oh, I, I was just going to say, what about the purple stuff? Yeah, exactly. You know, who knows? <laughs> My Sunny Delight commercial reference. Sorry. Dave thought it was funny. Keep going. No, I know what you were referencing, Josh. Oh, gosh. And then don't feed it after midnight. Till when, bro? Like, till, till what time? That is true. And as, as Roger Eber, as Siskel and Eber point out in their, in their segment, it's always after midnight somewhere. So really... Right. Like, and if the Mogwai come from China, like, what is it? Maybe what if it's after midnight in China? Um, no, you're right. And obviously these are silly rules. I did wonder about the liquid thing too, in the scene where the gremlins are all drinking in the bar and they've got all this beer and it's like, well, if they spill beer on each other, are they going to reproduce suddenly? Well, if they're drinking beer there, it's going into their internal right. organs. You would think right. that would cause it also, you know? Yeah. And cause Billy's dad initially says, don't even like give gizmo water to drink. So. Yeah, obviously that's true. But again, I feel like this movie is working in the tradition of these silly creature features. And in a way, the fact that the rules are somewhat nonsensical is part of the point. Like, right. they are ridiculous and arbitrary, and yet you have to follow them. And of course, you have to break them because that's why the movie happens. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you're not on board with the tone of the movie or you don't find it entertaining, then it's a lot easier to stop and think about like, well, what about what what if this happens or what if that happens? But I didn't mind any of that. Or even if it came to mind, it was just like, oh, I'm amused by how ridiculous it is. And now I'm enjoying the movie. Uh, I mean, I, I that's that's the thing I liked it. Um, it is so enjoyable that you can ignore that. But if you're not into it, you're going to be like, what? Why is this a thing? And actually in Gremlins 2, they do make that reference. Like, well, it is always midnight, you know, it's, you know, in the somewhere. So they, they poke fun at their own rules there. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Joe Dante is well aware of that kind of stuff because he's well-versed in these kinds of movies. And uh, I think this, obviously not nearly to the degree of Gremlins 2, but I think there's some self-awareness and kind of tongue-in-cheek nature to the whole mythology here in, in this movie as well. And uh, Josh, what do you think? I mean, what a year for teen actors, huh? We, uh, we're going to get to more of them, you know, later in the season. But here we have Phoebe Cates, two years out of uh, Fast Times, and uh, Zach Galligan, two years uh, out of nothing. And, uh, you know, they're <laughs> and, basically and two, two years ahead of nothing, really, as well. <laughs> yeah. They're basically, you know, the leads again. Do you think they carry the movie well, Josh? 
I, I mean, I do. I think they're likable. Again, they're dumb as hell, all of the characters, really. And and Billy is, is quite irresponsible with his uh, handling of Gizmo. But I think it doesn't, it, whereas it could be like really frustrating, like, oh my God, these characters are such idiots. Like I can't watch the movie. I can't enjoy it because I just want to yell at them. But I think they're likable enough that I didn't mind that. And I mean, Zach Galligan, I think, as has been borne out by the fact that he did not become any kind of star, doesn't have a huge amount of charisma, but I think he works fine as the the meek kind of dopey guy in this movie. And Phoebe Cates is is really good, even though she has a much smaller part, but she does have that charisma. You can tell why she was a big teen star in the 1980s. So yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Um, one other nitpick, as long as we're going to go with that, I'd like to know, how old did you think Billy was? <laughs> right. That's the thing. I, it feels like he's in high school, but... I, I guess he's got to be 21. I don't know. How old is, how, do you have an answer? Yeah, it was very strange because yeah, he clear like he has a full-time job at a bank. So, he doesn't <laughs> seem to be a teenager. And he's very concerned about like losing his job at the bank when Judge Reinhold threatens him. And you're right, he's got to be 21. He hangs out at the bar with Phoebe Cates who works at the bar and she appears to be the same age as him and she also works at the bank. But he lives at home. There's no discussion about him like going to college. And I, I, I feel like I read some descriptions of the movie that say the dad is buying a gift for his, quote, teenage son um, when he buys Gizmo. So it was very unclear to me. And you also, I mean, even though it's not explicitly stated, he does go back to his high school like chemistry teacher to, you know, take the gremlin there and run the tests, you know. Who I I uh, I like uh, Glenn Turman, you know he's really good. I think he's fun. Yeah, and Glenn Turman is great. I've just been watching the most recent season of Fargo that he's on, and he's fantastic on that. He's always really good. Uh, he plays another very dumb character, though. I mean, the he, guy is a he's a science teacher. First of all, Billy irresponsibly does not tell the science teacher about the rules. rules. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't tell him the rules at all. So. <laughs> and then, of course, the science teacher just just fucks with the gremlin, and and he gets what's coming to him. Uh, Josh, I also thought like, cause they do seem young. They, they seem like they're in high school. That was a little weird because Phoebe Cates, you know, in uh, fast times has like one of cinema's iconic, like sexy, you know, uh, topless scenes, right? Like, you know, yeah. life's the same when you're moving in stereo, life's the same except for the shoes, you know? And now it's like, she's playing an older person who seems younger than that. It's really, it really messes with your head, you know? I mean, actors can play different kinds of characters, Jason. No, Josh, they cannot. Yeah. That's a ridiculous <laughs> thing that you've said. Uh, do you think Zach Galligan can play a different type of character? <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. Um, but, you know, I think I saw somewhere, it might have been on Wikipedia, so again, you never know. But I think actually some people shared your concern that there were maybe some studio executives who thought that having done what she did in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that, that Phoebe Cates was not the right casting for this wholesome character. But I mean, she pulls it off and she's still, of course, beautiful. And you yeah. can tell why Billy is attracted to her. And, and again, she's a good actor. I don't, I don't mean to harp on this one random scene, but the scene where she tells the tragic story of her father's death as he got stuck in the chimney trying to play Santa Claus is hilarious 
And in part because she delivers it so seriously. And she just sells the hell out of that moment. And I just got the biggest laughs of the whole movie out of it. I, I agree with you that she is, you know, of the of the lead. She's the one you want to keep following, you know? One thing I wanted to talk about was like, I love, like when we were talking about like this as like a Christmas movie in a small town, I think they did such a great job of designing Kingston Falls and it's all like Hollywood backlots. Like they didn't shoot on location or anything. It looks like such a traditional small town. You know, they sh they have a clip, I think, of It's a Wonderful Life in there. And it looks so perfect, like as like this small town that you would want to spend Christmas in. Yeah, I mean, and I think what it looks like is less even like a real small town. And it looks like a movie small town. Yes. And that's really the important thing. You know, there's a great like uh, at the very end, I think it might even be the final shot. When, when Billy and uh, Phoebe Kate's character, whose name I've forgotten now, um, are, are sort of walking down the street and the, the, the camera pulls back to show you the whole town. And there's this very obvious matte painting of the background. And like the fact that it's an obvious matte painting is what makes it great because it's like telling you, hey, this is a movie town. This isn't a real town. This is, but it is a really convincing movie town. And I mean, those references to It's a Wonderful Life too, are not just they have it on TV at one point and Gizmo loves watching old movies. He watches other old movies as well. But of course, you know, like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, Billy works at a bank and he's got a heartless boss and it's Christmas time and he feels down. I mean, there's a lot of very specific It's a Wonderful Life stuff going on here. Right, it does reference a lot of uh, holiday tropes and Christmas uh, films of the past, as we've mentioned. So um, I agree with you there, Josh. Uh, did you have, and Dave, you could chime in there too. Did you have any favorite uh, sequences of, uh, of you know, of any of this? Like for me, I love the sequence with the mom fighting off the gremlins and she puts one in the, um, the blender and one in the microwave. I thought those were some great kills and really, really fun. Yeah, I agree that that sequence is great as in terms of the sort of battle against the gremlins and the fact that the mom is just like a straight up murderer of gremlins and she doesn't have to wait to like find out the backstory of what's going on or have Billy warn her. She's just like, I'm going to fucking kill him. And yeah, she's a, she's a badass and those kills are really fun and you could see like if you saw them in the theater, you'd be clapping, you know, while you scarfed on popcorn and had water spray in your face like if you were Dave. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's the exact same scene I would have said, too, if you guys hadn't said it. But, uh, you know, so I'll also go with the bar is great. And I mean, there's just there's a lot of fun scenes like that. But that is the best one, I think. Yeah, I mean, that really. Um, and I think that gets to like if you were if you were unsure at that point, whether this is a full on horror movie, it, that answers your question. That's yeah, because it's it's gruesome and violent. I mean, you're not you don't really see any gore in terms of people getting killed. And actually, very few people do get killed. Um, well, the black guy gets killed and he gets killed. Of like, course. First, you know, yes. The so. science teacher gets killed and, and Mrs. Deagle, as you point out, gets thrown out the window. And, that, and that's a great death. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and we want her to die because she's the evil. A uh, ruthless real estate developer who's trying to kick people out of their homes, and she's greedy, and of course, so we want to see her get her comeuppance. Uh, the science teacher, you know, maybe didn't follow proper scientific principles, but he didn't need to die. No. But even even so, even with those, you don't see we don't see blood, we don't see severed anything. But the gremlins, being not human, 
I think within the PG rating, there's more leeway to show them blow up and get decapitated and have all this goo spurt out. And because they're just puppets, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's Kate. That's Phoebe Cates' character's name. Oh, there Kate. you go. But uh, I agree with you. Plus, they torment Gizmo, who's su- such an adorable little scamp that you want to um, get the revenge on them, you know? That is true. Yes, Gizmo is quite adorable. I remember that was one thing I always remember from as a kid that I think I would enjoy saying is that that uh, Stripe, the the sort of leader of the evil gremlins, says multiple times when he says, Gizmo Kaka, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> and I don't know why, but that like has stuck in my brain since I was 10 years old. That's something to say for your therapist. Um <laughs> I uh, I like a lot of uh, I think the music's great. You know Jerry Goldsmith, uh, who won an Oscar for The Omen and did music from everything from Patton in Chinatown to Hoosiers in Mulan. Like uh, you know, we have two iconic themes in there that play. And uh, I also like you know when we see the Gremlins do their Christmas carols. Yes, the Gremlins. I mean, and that's I think the Gremlins Christmas Carol is is emblematic of something. Is that the gremlins, even in their evilest form, are super cute and kind of endearing, and they're more interested in just random chaos than they are in hurting people. And, and really, it's only when the people start hurting them that they really get vindictive. So, Okay, you bring up a good point, Josh. Yeah. Um, how do they know so much, these gremlins? They have, they seem, they know the words to the Snow White song. They know Christmas carols. And they have an incredible knack for shorting out electronics that I don't understand. <laughs> Were they, did they go to engineering school? Am I, was that a cutscene or something? They really, like, they're shorting out traffic lights. They're, they're making, uh, they're cutting brakes on cars. They really have a mechanical knowledge of how things work that I'm impressed by. Well, I can't really speak to the mechanical knowledge. I will say that in terms of singing and stuff, it, it I think is meant to be kind of mimicry. I mean, obviously the lyrics to that Snow White song, Hi Ho, are not uh, complicated. And I think you could learn them by watching, you know, you, they're watching the movie and they start singing after the song has started. So they kind of get into it. And, and, and actually there is, like I said, I watched some of the deleted scenes and there actually is a deleted scene of Stripe watching some human Christmas carolers sing a song before the scene of the gremlin singing, which is not necessary. And it was right to delete it, but it yeah. does answer that question for you. As far as their engineering knowledge, though, I, I cannot say. Amazing. It really is. (laughs) The only thing I can guess at is that perhaps they have some sort of genetic inherited knowledge from Gizmo. And having lived in the old Chinese man's shop for many, many years, Gizmo has absorbed knowledge about electronics. (laughs) But this is very speculative. Well, it could could also be that we know Gizmo loves television and maybe he's watched some type of popular mechanics style show. You know, maybe there was a spinoff from the magazine we're not aware about. I got no answer for that one, to be honest. No, no, this is this is important. Uh, hey, world you mentioned building. you mentioned the deleted scenes. Um, did did were any of the deleted scenes the ones that like Joe Dante wanted, uh, where the gremlins eat Billy's dog, or uh, or no, these were ones that were not filmed. Did you read about these? Yeah, these were just in the original script by Chris Columbus. Yeah, I think, when it was when it was a lot darker and more brutal. Right, they eat Billy's dog. They decapitate Billy's mom. And then you see a McDonald's customer like eating a Big Mac because, of course, and uh, the gremlins like swarm him. And instead of eating the Big Mac, they eat the customer, which I think is pretty, pretty smart. 
know? Yeah, but I think those scenes all kind of mess with the perception of the gremlins that I've been that I've been talking about that I think the movie is trying to go for, which is that they're largely just mischievous and less murderous until they're confronted with something. And I think, you know, that it, it has the exact right balance of them being kind of cute and just little scamps and then being really dangerous. And those scenes would have probably pushed it too far. Yeah, you're right. It's got a real uh, fun tone to it. The same way Ghostbusters does, which was released the same week. One thing I wanted to bring up to you that I read, which I thought was like misguided and almost offensive, uh, was Jonathan Rosenbaum. Do you, I guess he's a critic. Yeah, for the Chicago, he was the critic for the Chicago Reader for many, many, many years. He said that the Gremlins uh, reflect negative African American stereotypes, and I feel like that's pretty offensive. Like to, I, I don't even. Where did you get that from? Yeah, I read that too. That's I. I mean, I haven't read the original where the context of that. That's like briefly quoted again on. Wikipedia. It was like Gremlins eat fried chicken and go to bars and listen to blues music, and that's offensive to say. One that that's, you know, like everyone likes fried chicken and blues music, right? You know, so I mean, I, and they eat fried chicken because Billy's family has it in the yeah, refrigerator. It seemed really like um, misguided in that criticism to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And the gremlins do tons of other stuff that is not based on stereo or is, is based on sort of like different shorthand references to things where there's the one gremlin who wears the like aerobicize outfit, like it's doing a Jane Fonda routine or something. And the gremlin flasher, which is quite risque for a movie that might be uh, aimed at children. Although gremlins do appear to have no genitalia and they do reproduce asexually. So I suppose it's not as offensive, but yeah, well that, uh, you know, we've talked about flash dance a lot this season. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was a flash dance homage with, um, the way that it was shot, you know, kind of right. the dancing there. But yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it's messed up. I, I didn't, I didn't like that criticism. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you can look at it and say it's, it's using some Asian stereotypes in the way that it represents Chinatown. And uh, I mean, and again, obviously, as I was saying, I feel like it kind of plays with that and the idea of the clueless white people, but I could see how you might criticize it for, for using those, those stereotypes about Asian people. But that I think is a real stretch from Jonathan Rosenbaum. So, and I haven't seen that come up anywhere else. That's not like a common criticism that's been repeated. It's not something that people now say, looking back at it from all these years later. So I don't, I don't really see that as something relevant. Um, So he's wrong. He's wrong. wrong. I won't read any of his stuff in any local bars or grills. No, no. I mean, he's generally a very well-respected critic and, and again, was, was for years um, the main critic, uh, one of the major critics in Chicago, as you know, we always talk about Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, but I think he's off the mark there. Two, uh, two quick notes, Josh, and then I think yes. let's rate this thing. Did you know that, you know, hey, uh, before Joe Dante, Spielberg had watched a lot of Tim Burton uh, short films and was considering uh, him but uh, to direct the movie, which would have been great. But yeah. um but Tim Burton hadn't made a feature at this point, so that he kind of held off on that. Uh, I didn't know that, but I could absolutely see this as something Tim Burton would have, would have done a great job with. And I think Burton and Dante have some similar sensibilities. I mean, Burton has gone on to to create this very particular personal style. I think you know to his detriment in a lot of ways in his later films. Right. But um, but at this point, they're both these guys who grew up 
on these kind of B movies and monster movies and stuff like that and incorporated it into their style. So I could definitely see that. Yeah. And that's not a knock on Joe Dante. Cause I think we both probably think this is his best work, you know, as uh, a director. Maybe. I mean, this is a great movie. I just, I, I do think uh, there's some other, we'll talk about more jo- about Joe Dante, but you know, some other stuff that he's done that's really good. Okay. The last thing I wanted to mention was, did you uh, see what was on the marquee at the beginning of the movie at the movie theater? What was playing? Oh, I think I made a note of that in my mind and then I forgot it. Uh, a Boy's Life and Watch the Skies. And Watch the Skies relates to Awesome Movie Year because? It was the original title for Close Encounters of the Third Kind? That's right. And A oh. Boy's Life was another Spielberg early, you know, kind of movie idea. So right. that was pretty cool. A lot That's of tripping. references to King Spielberg in this one. Well, you know, he's the producer. There is also, there's a little E.T. toy that one of the gremlins kind of pushes aside in the big climax, uh, the climactic battle. So certainly, yeah, there's some references there. Um, I did want to mention the voice actors because it's like a quite a, an impressive lineup of people who do the voices for the gremlins and the Mogwai, including Howie Mandel, uh, Michael Winslow, the uh, future uh, sound effects star of the Police Academy movies, uh, as well as Spaceballs. And then uh, Peter Cullen and Frank Welker, who are like iconic uh, animated voice actors. Peter Cullen is the voice of Optimus Prime, among other things. So, I mean, even in those details, Joe Dante is getting these guys with like really top-notch skills to do these these voices. That is true. Yeah. And uh, since we were remiss in mentioning this in our Beverly Hills Cop episode, and one of our listeners, Ken Miller, called us out for uh, not uh, giving props to Jonathan Banks, future co-star of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, he also appears here as the sheriff's deputy, and he was in Beverly Hills Cop as one of the henchmen, looking much younger <laughs> than, obviously, than people remember him from those other things. So he doesn't really do much in this movie, but I just wanted to mention him because we didn't before. Well, hopefully Ken Miller won't call you out for leaving Dick Miller, who played Murray Futterman, out of this podcast and had a much bigger role in Gremlins 2 for some reason. Yeah, well, Dick Miller is a favorite. He's he's worked with yeah. Dante a bunch of times, and he's he was in a million Roger Corman movies. Sure, and, super fun and, character actor. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, I just watched the original Little Shop of Horrors not that long ago, where Dick Miller plays the guy who enjoys eating flowers, and uh, <laughs> was very entertaining. In that, so. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's a random tidbit. So, uh, yeah, shall we rate this out of five uh, exploded gremlins in the microwave? Sure. It's a three for me and a very enjoyable three. I could watch this every Christmas season. I, I'm surprised you're not rating it higher. I, I'm going to give it a three and a half. I, I enjoy it thoroughly, and I, I too could watch it every Christmas. Uh, Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm going with a three. All right. So, yeah, it's a fun movie. How do you rate the experience of being uh, shot in the face with things during this movie? Uh, also a three? Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, We'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Gremlins. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special Christmas episode of our season on the films of 1984. We've been talking about Joe Dante's Gremlins. And the legacy of Gremlins, I think, of course, starts with the sequel, Gremlins 2, The New Batch in uh, 1990. 
which I haven't seen in a while, but as much as I loved Gremlins as a kid, I loved Gremlins 2 like 10 times more. I was super into Gremlins 2. And but it's I been a, love that about you, Josh. Um, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I know it, it got very, it's very satirical. It's very self-referential. It's not family friendly at all. And it just, I, I remember it being really clever and maybe it was really clever to me because I was, you know, uh, 12 years old when I was watching it or whatever. But um, I, I, wa I was going to try to watch it again and I just didn't have the time. Well, I did have the time and I did watch it because I care about this podcast oh. and our listeners. What's your excuse? I don't care about this podcast or <laughs> our listeners. So. <laughs> I'm glad that's been put out front. Um, look, it's not a good movie, but it is so insane. I was left with no uh, option but to respect it. It's so off the wall nuts. Like, the, and uh, Dante. You know, because they had been toying with all these Gremlin 2 movies for, you know, this took six years, right? And yeah. it went to this director and that director and this script and that script. And Joe Dante finally signed on with like full creative control. And I'm guessing that was the last time he ever got full creative control because it's one of the craziest studio movies ever. And it's like, I'm like, this is bad, but it's like so incredibly like not, it doesn't work at all that like I was like, I will, yeah, I'm. Respect, sir. Respect to you. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting you say it was bad. Uh, I mean, and again, I don't know what I would think about it now. I, and I loved it as a kid. But from a, a like a critic standpoint, it is beloved. I mean, it's it's probably more highly acclaimed critically even than the original Gremlins is. But not, but not from a uh, audience standpoint, I'd say. No, no, it was not a success. And you're you're probably right that it led in part to Joe Dante's career. Uh, decline. Although I will say we were talking about what else did Joe Dante make. My my personal favorite Joe Dante movie, although I haven't also haven't seen it in a really long time, was a movie he made after Gremlins 2, uh, which is Matinee with yeah. John Goodman, which is another like, and that's a very explicit tribute to 50s B movies. And it takes place in the 50s. And it's John Goodman is this kind of William Castle-esque movie producer, comes to a small town with his movie Mant about the man-ant hybrid. And it's just so clever and fun. And John Goodman is great. And it's a great tribute to all those kinds of movies. And I think I saw that again when I was, that movie I think is from 1993, I want to say. Yeah. And I saw that. So I saw that when I was a young teenager. And that movie led to me wanting to see, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and the original The Thing and and movies like that or or Them, the movie about the, the giant mutated ants, which is a clear inspiration. So, I mean, I think that is almost maybe like the culmination of Joe Dante's love affair with these kinds of movies. Yeah, I like that movie too, but uh, that's pretty cool that it made you go back and watch other movies. I like that. Yeah, and I think that's something that Joe Dante would probably be happy about, that that was probably something he was hoping for with that well, movie. Well, right after Dave gets Martin Brest on the phone, he <laughs> can work on getting Joe Dante on the phone. I know there's one other thing he's supposed to do this season, but we'll see if he does any of them. Yeah. Um, there, uh, there is also a, uh, I mean, breakfast cereal, there's a breakfast cereal. There's, there's all sorts of merchandising. And because this is these, the gremlins have become these pop culture characters. There's a, a prequel series, an animated prequel series that's coming up on HBO max, because of course, every property has to be exploited in this, uh, modern, wonderful era of content. 
And probably eventually there'll be a Gremlins 3, if only because Zach Galligan needs to pay his rent. <laughs> but I mean, no, no it, it's also because, again, the branding and the fact that Warner Brothers wants to exploit this, it's something that's been talked about a lot. And it seems like it's probably going to end up happening. Yeah, probably. Or some type of not if not Gremlins 3, some reboot of the whole thing. But uh, yeah, you know, Josh, I want to go back to that criticism that you mentioned that the critics like Gremlins 2 more. Yeah. Uh, did you know, you know, Leonard Malton did not like the first Gremlins. And one of the cool bits in Gremlins 2 is they have him reading his review of Gremlins on the air and the Gremlins hit to attack him, which I thought was very cool to take the piss out of themselves like that. And for him to do that, too. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff. And I don't know uh, how you watched Gremlins 2 now or where, the way it is, but I remember there's a scene in it when it came out in theaters where the gremlins like mess with the movie. Yeah. And in, in theaters, it's like the movie has been like the celluloid has been burned through. And then when the movie came out on VHS, they changed that scene so that it was them messing with like the VHS tracking or something like that, which I thought was really clever. And I don't know what it's like now if you watch it on streaming. Buffering maybe. Yeah. When, but if you saw it in the movies, it was uh, Hulk Hogan who intimidated the gremlins into Putting the movie back on, brother. There you go. <laughs> um, but just the, the way that it plays with stuff. And again, it's been so long. I, I don't, but I, that I do, I still remember that being one of the things in the, the details in there. Let's talk about Chris Columbus, man. Yeah. Chris Columbus has had quite a disappointing career. <laughs> what? He's a legend. No, I mean, he's had a very successful career, but I, I had forgotten that he was the writer of this and this movie is so, I mean, and, and I, I think, you know, in a large part, thanks to Joe Dante, but still like it came from him initially. This movie is so clever and dark and, uh, you know, self-aware. And I feel like Chris Columbus went on to make a lot of very successful and sometimes enjoyable, but not particularly sophisticated family-friendly movies. Well, I mean, he wrote Goonies, which I love, you know, Dave, yeah. you with me on Goonies? Sure. He directed Home Alone, which was written by um, uh, awesome movie year's favorite writer of the 80s, John Hughes. Yes, and I like Home Alone. And I, I mean, I know you like John Hughes a lot more than I do, but I think Home Alone is fun. But what I'm saying is that Home Alone, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like, it, it doesn't have the same edge as something like Gremlins, and, and nor does basically anything that Chris Columbus has done and he's fallen a bit. The last movie he did was uh, is out uh, now, is The Christmas Chronicles 2 on Netflix. Oh, did he do that one? Yeah, he directed that. Did you watch it? I did not, but I mean, it's definitely not. I mean, it's a popular movie for Netflix, but it's I don't think it's quite at the blockbuster heights of when he was directing Home Alone or the first two Harry Potter movies. I do kind of like Adventures in Babysitting that he directed. He's done plenty. Give him a break, man. No, I, Harry, like I said- Harry Potter's, like you said- Okay, we're not going to give give him credit for Pixels, but or the Percy Jacksons, but you know he's done a lot of good things. He's made a lot of very successful movies, some that I enjoy, none of which reach the artistic heights of Gremlins. Uh, I would say Home Alone to me. Yeah, but, I would say yeah. Home Alone as well, but yeah. otherwise you might be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right, Josh. Uh, but but he wrote Goonies, so yeah, deal with I, it. I don't really like Goonies, but that's another podcast. <laughs> well, that's uh, you being a dum dum. Yeah. Um, I do like the the list of, of sort of knockoff movies, uh, including Critters and Ghoulies and Munchies and yeah. Hobgoblins that all came out in the wake of this. And I've actually I've seen Critters, which is uh, 
not great, but I think has a cult following and has a, a number of sequels. As we mentioned, Zach Galligan, not a big success. <laughs> I think Zach Galligan, I think actually his career is, is mirrors someone that we talked about a couple episodes ago, Michael Pare, who was the star of Streets of Fire, and which was a flop, but it could have been a big breakout for him. And instead, he just went on to work in a lot of really low budget B-movies, and he works steadily. And that's the same case for Zach Galligan. You look at Zach Galligan's filmography, and 90% of those are movies that you will never have heard of. Yeah, but there is another movie from 1984. And uh, Josh, I thought you might of all people know it because you go to like festivals and they show sometimes these lost movies. Uh, it's Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever. He was a writer for SNL for Saturday Night Live. And Bill Murray's in it. And it's it like popped up on the internet and then it's gone. And I really want to see it. And it's impossible to find. I have seen that, actually. I forgot about that, but I saw that at the TCM Film Festival. And it's one of those movies that I think the legend surrounding it is better than the movie, but mm. it's it's an interesting, weird movie. I mean, I'm glad I got to see it. I was eager when they programmed it, whatever year it was, a few years ago. I certainly made sure to you know plan to go to the screening. But yeah, it's one of those movies where it's like got a bunch of weird stuff that doesn't really fit together, but it's certainly a very... It's a singular vision of that filmmaker. So I'm glad I saw it, but honestly, it didn't make a huge impression on me. And I didn't even remember it until you just brought it up. Well, I'm glad you saw it. Uh, last thing I want to say about Joe Dante as it relates to awesome movie year on our Space Jam episode, we mentioned Looney Tunes back in action, which has a cult following and he directed that. It does. And I, I think I probably said this in our Space Jam episode that I was a bit disappointed watching that because it has a cult following and because I think Joe Dante is quite talented. Uh, they did that movie just didn't really do it for me. Phoebe Cates, as we mentioned, was a big teen star in the 80s and uh, retired from acting in 1994 and has remained retired. So, you know, good for her for uh, sticking to that conviction. She's an icon. She is. She is. And the last legacy thing I wanted to mention is um, Baby Yoda, who looks so much like Gizmo. Fair. Fair. <laughs> and yeah. and and the 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 sort of fight to use practical effects versus CGI is something I think that makes Baby Yoda work in The Mandalorian because Jon Favreau, in part at the urging of Werner Herzog, uh, insisted on using puppets for that character rather than CGI. And I think that's something that makes that character feel real and feel like is, is part of the world in that movie. And, and makes it successful. Um, and, and again, it just, watching Gizmo this time, I was looking at his ears and his eyes, and I'm like, man, that's Baby Yoda right there. Mm -hmm. When you look back on your life, there will be a number of decisions you will look back on, either in a positive or negative light. One would be the use of puppetry versus CGI. This is as important as any decision you will have ever made, Mr. John Favreau. You know, and it's possible, like, first of all, thank goodness that we got the Herzog impression back after last season when we heard it so many times. It had to um, come back. And, but I think it is quite possible that he said something like that. And I think he said in interviews that he essentially told Jon Favreau that uh, something along those lines, that you, you will regret it if you don't use this puppet because it's, it's, so, it's so affecting. It made Werner Herzog cry. Oh. Um, Amazing. Hey, I know it's not your type of music, Josh. I, as you know, I'm a fan of the indie rock. Dave, you like the Mogwai? You like that band? Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, they are good. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Good input. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, good Dave. Band. When Dave, you wake Dave. up, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, 
<laughs> That's Gremlins. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com, a website that gremlins might as well eat. Uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com. It's got the About section, guys. It's got the feed. Hey, and also, Josh, I want to say we just got our numbers back for the end of the year from Spotify. We had a ton of growth, and we want to thank everyone who has listened, who has interacted, who has recommended the podcast. We love all of our listeners, and uh, we really, there's no point in doing it if we don't get any feedback from you guys and you, we don't get this enthusiasm. So, thank you to all the listeners, and uh, happy holidays for real, and happy new year. <laughs> Yes, as much as uh, my sarcastic holiday greetings came across, um, it, it does mean a lot that people listen, that people share it with their friends, that they give us feedback, that they tell us we're stupid because we didn't like Paris, Texas. Whatever you want to <laughs> tell us, we love to hear it. Uh, and our Christmas gift is having you listen to our show. So thank you. Not um, much of a gift, but we, we're trying, guys. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, you can also, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, which as of this release either does or does not have a series of posts about Christmas horror movies, including Gremlins, depending on whether I actually succeeded in doing that. Um, so it's a suspenseful thing. Uh, you can also uh, find me at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, which has bonus content from Awesome Movie Year, as well as my podcast, Piecing It Together, and my music. And it makes for a great uh, Christmas gift to get yourself. That's right. Don't forget as much as you might want to. <laughs> oh, that is nice. <laughs> does, does Patreon have gift cards? That's the question. We'll find out. Yeah. Dave, when are you putting up your OnlyFans? <laughs> That's my growth goal for 2021. Yeah. We got to get the Patreon going first. Yeah. What's in our next episode, Jason? Josh, it's our foreign film, and we are going right to Hong Kong in the middle of uh, the golden age of action cinema over there, or one of them anyway. We are going to Wheels on Meals, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, the three brothers. Let's do it. So tune in next time for Wheels on Meals, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.